You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas behind your favorite online brands. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Eva Goykachev, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I can't believe it's been welcome so long. back. I know. <laughs> welcome back to the show. It's been two and a half years. I just calculated. Um, you're the CEO of Mod. You were on episode five, which is pretty crazy because this is like episode seventy or something wow. like this. And you're one of our very first guests at the time. You were balancing a lot of stuff. You you were, I think you were still primarily making Squarespace websites, but also you were building a watch company called Tinker and you were starting to think about what you're doing today with Mod. So I want to just give a quick update to people about where you're at and we're going to go into some more details on what it's been like to build and launch a company. But let's talk about Mod real quick and then we'll go into some of these other things. Yeah. Can you tell people how you describe Mod these days? So Mod is a direct-to-consumer, inclusive, modern sexual wellness brand. And we went to market in April of 2018. So not very old. We're nine months old. Uh, two Holy days moly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like we've been, you and I have been talking about it for so long. And, but the launch, and there's so much behind you know, the product development, the branding, you know, actually putting the, you know, the website together and, and the launch. So... What happened during the past two and a half years <laughs> that let, because it, it felt like things could go in any direction, you know, two, two and a half years ago. These different projects didn't, you know, all felt like each of them might take off in its own way. So how did you decide that this is where you wanted to focus your energy? Well, so I fell into building Squarespace sites because I had left Everlane. I was one of the first employees there. I ran social media, culture, and hiring. And when I left, I couldn't find a company that I wanted to work for. They were closing their LA office and I just could not find that company that I was excited about. And I started consulting with brands and I would build their sites. And that just sort of snowballed and it allowed me the income and the flexibility to be building these other companies. I always intended to start a company and because I was a legislative aide in healthcare early on, this made a lot of sense, but to get something like mod to market takes a very long time. So some people are like, weren't you doing these other things? And it's like, yes, but I had to do them in order for me. You got to pay the bills. You got to pay the bills. (laughs) And also you have to deal with the FDA. So it's, it's like a very long process. And Tinker, Tinker was like a great, it still is, it exists still, but it was like a good exercise in learning how to build a product. So it all made sense. To me, it feels linear. It doesn't sound very linear. (laughs) I forgot about the FDA stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But, Okay, so Tinker, that was a big project in itself. Where is that at? How did you decide to kind of focus your energy more on mod? Well, so Tinker only took in a $25,000 check uh, from Stephen Allen, and then it was primarily self-funded amongst the founders. And so it's it's always been a small company. It is now, it's still online, and it's now in J.Crew and Madewell on their websites. And so it continues to run. The other founders, one of them being... Ian, who I'm married to, run the com- <laughs> you know they run the company on the side. We all we all have other things going on. Ian's an engineer for LG, but that's what Tinker is. Tinker wasn't like this really big, got it, big thing in terms of getting funding. But Mod is a whole nother beast. But on the surface, I think if someone were to just try to understand what you're doing, and you look at Tinker, it's a watch company. It's got a lot of customization involved if you're not familiar with how movements and stuff like that, you know, that, that you can buy some of those things off the shelf, like, it might seem like that seems way more complex than a brand that's, you know, selling condoms and lube. But how do you think about that? How would you explain that to someone? Well, I think there's only a few companies that make movements. So we're not, we're not making the movements. So watches were, you know, we're assembling the components much like other companies out there. And we work with the factory directly to build the case, et cetera, et cetera. So we're bringing all these pieces together. It's not complicated in terms of, you know, mod is sexual wellness products, even if they seem simple. A condom is a class two medical device. So it's regulated by the FDA. And then the other products, depending on what's in them, um, are also highly regulated. So even though they're more simple in terms of components, they're way more complicated in terms of getting them to market. Yeah. So I want to cover a little bit more about your your journey with mod 
Well, we were we were just talking about this before we started recording, but when we we last uh, spoke on the podcast, Trump hadn't been elected. You know, all this uh, stuff with the Me Too movement hadn't launched, and there's been this big wave happening. Meanwhile, you're over here. You you kind of you had a, a mission in mind of you know wanting to build a more inclusive company uh, around sexual wellness and those kind of things are happening side by side and you're just trying to develop a product, like working with the different factories. How did all of that feel? And, and maybe describe a little bit about kind of the, the phases that you went through as you were preparing to launch the company and the product. So mod was an idea in 2015 and in true form, because this is what I do, I built a website for it. Um, and so it's ha- step one, step one, right? No, that's not step one. I don't recommend that to anyone, but that was my step one. And so it had, it's th- not that crazy though. You know, the, the, it's a, like an old Amazon trope that they always like write the press release before they start working on the product. Cause they kind of, it helps you imagine, okay, what is this thing going to be if we actually are successful? Well, had I talked to my co-founder who is an industrial designer who designed these products, she would have been like, FDA. (laughs) There's a lot of time between when you launch the site and when we can actually get the product out. So, but she wasn't involved yet. So this is 2015. I'm working on mod and it really was all of the things that I was interested in converging. Also the idea of making everyday health better for people was something that stuck with me from the time I was a legislative aide in healthcare. And because I was at Everlane, this idea of being a transparent company, really having a connection to the consumer was there for me. And, and so that's how I thought about building this. I didn't know how to build the product. I didn't know how to how to manufacture the product. So 2016 rolls around and I'm sort of hitting a wall in terms of finding the factories. And someone said, call Dina, your friend. And I had no idea that Dina ever designed sex toys. Call her on the phone and she's like, oh yeah, I, I, I worked for these really big companies. I designed sex toys. I left because the industry is so broken and it's not friendly for women Um, and I am really excited about what you're doing. I want to jump aboard. So she did. And that's when we started working on the product and it went through multiple iterations in terms of the brand, but we really did start working with those factories very early on. And it really did take that much time. Um, because you're this little guy knocking on the door saying, Hey, I know you produce for giant many, you know, other companies, but we want to get in line. And they're like, you're the minimums over a million units. So that's what 2016 was about. 2017 was fundraising, uh, really solidifying the brand. And then 2018 was going to market. So I was working on this that whole time. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. And, and when you were saying a million units, that's, that's for the condoms, right? Because you have several products. Maybe just kind of describe what the, the product line looks like today. Sure. So when we launched, we wanted to launch with essentials. We didn't want to make any of the products a hero because we are saying, here are your sex basics. And so we launched with a condom two lubricants, a vibrator, and we just in November launched a massage candle. And then we had a quickie pack, which is like two condoms and one little vial of lube. So yeah, we dealt with multiple factories. It was really Dina. She's the chief product officer. While I was building uh, the site with our team and, and building the brand, she was working on this side of things. And one of the things that you've been really clear about from the beginning was that you didn't want to also sell tampons and other products. Why was that? Why is that something that you you draw a, a line between? So the reason for us existing is to be the new standard for a modern consumer in sex. And so that means every gender, every adult age. And so by offering feminine care, you're saying we're a company that is focused on women. We're not a company focused on women. And so that was why. And the other thing is, I think it's a very different, I mean, I would say people could argue this, but I think it's a very different topic. You don't, right? sometimes you don't want to think about sex when you're on your period. It's the last thing on your mind. So I, from a messaging perspective, I was like, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. It's sort of, I guess maybe it's like, these are the things that go together <laughs> from like a uh, ge- geographical uh standpoint like (laughs) which part of your body you're addressing but uh in terms of what's your mindset when you're thinking about these things they're pretty different yeah you could be um a headphone q-tip company sure (laughs) 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 but like it they're very different so that's that's how we thought of it and 
And that was what our DNA was from the beginning, that we're for all people. And so how did that inform the design process around the brand and the products? Well, so it's funny that you ask because I remember when the first episode launched and you had our old branding. So something I don't even have to explain to you, but the old branding had many colors. We were very excited. And then you soon realized through the production process, like it's, it's expensive. So we had to find the packaging and the symbols and the colors that felt really universal and we had to pare them down. So there was a whole other process then to like, again, reiterate the brand. So yeah, producing multiple colors and packaging is expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but that's not the only thing. It's not just about the colors. It's also about what, you know, the typography and even just the messaging, like what, um, you worked with with a design firm to help you on that. Like, what was your description to them when you were saying, here's what I want it to feel like? No, so we actually just worked with one designer and he just designed the logo and the symbols. And then we worked with Luke Ragno, who is my co-founder and Tinker, because he's a designer and a developer on the packaging mm. and the website. So we've always said that it's been very much in-house from the beginning. Yeah. And if you look at the composition of the team now, we do everything in-house. Besides make the product, we do everything else. Yeah. Well, I think that that is how people on the team feel like they own the the brand when they're the ones developing it and actually bringing it to people and evolving it over time. Yeah, absolutely. And the first person that we started working with is still the person here with us running social media. And that's, so it's been over a year, a year and a half. And So it's been interesting with Mod because we've had this really expedited, it feels like it's gone quickly and there's been so much that has happened, but we've had this like core team and we've built this with that team from the beginning. So you said 2017, you went through an accelerator program, I think, right? Or you were raising money and was that primarily to be able to fund the initial runs of manufacturing that you needed to do? No, so I didn't actually go to an accelerator program. I did... I did a program in the summer and I also did a program at Harvard, but they were both just to be helpful to how to build the business Mm. and how to raise money. We actually fundraised. It was very much a lot of warm intros, a lot of cold emails. If you want to talk about what not to do, (laughs) (laughs) emailing all these people that had never heard of us and never heard of me. But, you know, one person would lead to another and they, once you started getting those few checks in and people had, uh, they were confident in what you were doing. I think it was really helpful and it, you know, it was easier to sort of move the needle. So we ended up closing our first round. It was funny. We set the round at 250,000. We knew that that wasn't enough money to get it off the ground, but we just didn't know what we could do. We ended up raising 600,000. Wow. Which is not great for your dilution, but you know, things you learn. So that was in December of 2017. We closed that round. That allowed us to get to market, get the product, have a few people on the team get our first office, et cetera. And then we just closed a million and a half. So our second round of funding. I spent 18 months of my life fundraising. I am a different person. <laughs> what did you, okay, so wait a minute. You, you. you said there were some things that you did wrong. Was it just cold, cold emails, uh, you know, don't work as well as, as warm intros? Was there something else there? What else did you pick up? I'm not an aggressive fundraiser. I I am a really I'm I'm a really honest person and I I am reasonable. I like to underpromise and overdeliver and I think you need to overpromise when you're in these meetings. And so I dragged a lot of fundraising out because I was like, "Okay, sure, we can talk next week. Okay, now you've rescheduled. Sure, we can talk the following." I mean, you have to be aggressive. So Yeah. That all said, I think we ha- I mean, you've been through this, right? It's it's a it's a lot of work, but I think the nice thing, and, and I've heard this from you offline, I like my cap table. I love the people that have invested in us. I think we've ended up with a really amazing group of investors and they know who we are. So it all ended well. Yeah, I think that's really hard. And, and Jesse and I struggled with it because we're both very, I guess, reasonable people. And we like exactly. tend to be kind of conservative, actually, in the way that we spend money with the business. And we want to be realistic about things, but I think when you're in the fundraising conversations, even when you're dealing with with people who are very empathetic and and understand what it's like to be you know in the in the founder's shoes, they want to imagine 
what's like the best possible scenario. And so you kind of have to paint that picture so that they can understand, you know, the, the upside potential. Like what if this is way more successful than we all imagined? And that's kind of an awkward thing to have to do if it's not your personality. It's, it's true. Like I, we, Dina and I always say that we are very much producers and that it is a graduation of thinking to be directors. Mm. You know, we, we get our hands dirty. We like it. We like to build things. We're both very much designers. So I think if we go into a series A, when we go into a series A, it's that director mentality. And it's not that we're not confident. We're incredibly confident. It's that we just don't spout BS. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I completely see eye to eye with you on being reasonable, being prudent. Like, and so it's, it's pretty funny. Well, and I think and I think that's something, you know, to, to throw out a, a generalization out there. I think that for some reason, guys will have irrational confidence uh, and, and will say stuff that, you know, the, that that women tend to not say as much like and I, I've heard this directly from Jesse, like she feels like when she's, you know, in a room with with a bunch of investors, she's not going to be the one who necessarily says like, this is going to go to the moon because she wants to do just like you do, you know, under promise and over deliver. But you're, but, but there is a limited amount of venture capital, <laughs> like the, you know, the best venture investors are, are only making five to 10, 15 deals a year. So, you know, you have to make a compelling case for why it's going to be you. Well, I will say that something I've learned, you're told this, but I do think that you, especially when you're raising money for the first time, you don't, you don't remember for some reason. It is a two-way street. And you are just as much choosing them as they are choosing you. And I think recognizing now that many of the investors who told us no actually have no experience in our industry or adjacent industries, and they probably wouldn't have provided anything more than capital. And so you have to go in there and know what you're looking for too and keep that top of mind because you, you get so afraid that you can't like you're going to need the money to get the idea off the ground that you sort of go blind. And so at this point, we're like, we know who we are. We know what we've done. It's been nine months, but so much has happened. We've surpassed any milestone that we set for ourselves. And there is a, a newfound confidence. And, and so we're now more protective of the business, which is great. So what was it like actually convincing the manufacturers to help you with this stuff? Well, if you've ever met Dina, she can convince anyone to do anything. (laughs) So I'm glad that she was the one talking to the factories. Um, And an example of this is that the minimum that we were told was over a million, and she got them down to 100,000, and she got them down to 20,000 at a time. What was was her method? How did she do that? She's a charmer. I don't know what to (laughs) tell. She's great, and she's quiet, and she's thoughtful, and she's incredibly focused, and I think she just knows how to get things done. I, I tend to be more bullish and I'm the one that like knocks through doors, but yeah. So is there an area of the world where this stuff, where all the, the, the manufacturers for these kinds of products are, or how did, how did you find them in the first place? So yes, let me be clear. The, these are, these are just the condoms that I'm talking about and, and they're in Malaysia. Condoms are typically produced in Asia and she had relationships with the other factories, which is really unique to our company because there is no other company that's a new company or new startup in this space that has a founder who has experience designing sex products and had those manufacturing relationships before in that industry. So Dina had them. We could call up the lubricant factory. We could call up the candle factory. And she already knew what she was asking for. So it was really that 2016 was like the year of condoms. It was the year of getting the condom factory to work with us. But everything else has been easy because she already knew them. Was there something aside from the packaging that you were able to like tweak with them or like how did you make it your own or a product that performs differently or what were you looking for out of the product? We were looking for buttercup packaging. So it's, you know, it looks like butter. It looks like those little jam packets where you, you sort of open from the top, the foil from the top. And there's only a few manufacturers who do this. And so we knew that we had to get that first, that was a big challenge. What, why, why, were, why was that important? So having really human-centered design, easy-to-use products was important to us because we said, why are these products not only awkwardly 
messaged and marketed, but why are they so difficult to use? When you have to rip open mm. the foil, it's awkward. And then on top of that, when you're talking about sex education, like in New York, you can't open a condom if you're teaching sex ed. So being able to say, this is the buttercup, this is the way that's up when you open it, you'll always know which way is up because it's up when you open it, is is actually this like small change, but it makes a huge difference. And I think with the with the lubricants, we wanted a pump top so that it wasn't messy and you could easily use it. Same thing with the candle So each and, and the vibrator. So every product has been, how can you make it really easy to use and sort of foolproof? Makes sense. And there was something about how you wanted it to appear in the bathroom or on, on the nightstand or that kind of thing. Yeah, we wanted these colors and messaging that felt like it was universal and also timeless enough that you could be a customer for life. And so we do have... We have customers that, you know, range anywhere from teenagers all the way into their 80s. And we know that because they email us. Um, some of them have called me on the phone, which has been great. But just that that idea that you can have products for sex for your entire sex life is is something that for us was really important. It's so actually so atypical for this industry because we're it's always very gendered and it's always aimed at younger people. I want to talk about... A lot more about that, but I am very curious. This is something that I've been so fascinated by as I've been watching you launch the the company. Is just the press around it has been incredible, and I know that it, you know it started with just the two of you. How did you do that? Because like the week you launched, you had articles in like the New York Times and all kinds of different stuff. How how did you actually accomplish that? Well, the New York Times didn't show up until November, but we launched in Vogue. And I, um, I knew the writer at Vogue. So we had a landing page with the version of this branding in 2017. It was up a year before we launched. And we started getting press then. A part of me wanted to yank the site down at that point because it only led to email signups. It wasn't leading to purchase. And I thought, oh, no, this is like wasted press. So in 2017, we got press. That sort of created the I think like the lead up to getting bigger pieces because we already existed and there was some validation out there in the world. But it was, again, it was making lists, emailing the writers that we wanted to have cover us, building relationships. I moved to New York to raise money. I moved to New York to be close to press and to the partners that we wanted. And so that was my mission. I came here knowing that that's how we had to approach this. And so we didn't get a PR team until end of October. It was us. But tell me about building those relationships. What, what, how did you do that? We would email them. Very rarely did we like ask anyone to coffee. It, a lot of it was just being incredibly communicative and accessible. And so giving them the story, like talking through what they needed to create the angle, like doing a lot of the, the work for them so that they could tell the story easily. And that's what we learned. I, we don't know anything about like the press cycle. We're not the ones who understand the deadlines. Like at some point we did have to hand it over to a team who knew that cadence and the schedule that we needed to be on. But for the most part, it was like, hey, we know you wrote a gift guide last year about this. Hey, we know you wrote about this company or this topic. So we just started reaching out and it was long list. I'm a hyper-organized person. Airtable is my best friend. Yes, this is what, <laughs> Much yes. to the chagrin, I know, like much to the chagrin of my whole team. I'm like incredibly organized. And so that's what Why I Why much I just, to the chagrin? It seems like it'd be, they would love that. No, it's like, I'm like, guys, how's your email inbox? What's going on with your Slack channel? I mean, there's a system for everything. But even when there was two of us, we had that system because I was like, how do we scale? And then I want our time to be well spent. I don't want to keep going back and and trying to find things and do things over. So yeah, we made lists, lots of lists. You're just combing through everything, making lists of journalists that you might want to reach out to and then trying to tell them the story and seeing who bites. Like, is that the 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 way to go? Yeah, that's the way to go. I think I want to say, because I, I feel like we've been asked that question a lot and it's sex. People want to write about sex. So you have to remember that if you're launching another type of company, like it's not always, you know, comparable. People wanted to write about this. They were looking for something. So we had great timing. What was the reception like as you were launching from consumers, from the world out there? What What did people say? Well, so I want to back it up and say that in 2017, we decided to do a survey and it was 654 people. 
and they were 18 through 81. And we didn't show them mod. We didn't talk about mod. But 98% of people wrote something and they all said they had no brand affinity for the brands that exist out in the world. And then they, they wrote something and they were the same pain points over and over again. So I think that by the time we launched, we already knew that there was an interest. And so the reception's been great. I mean, we have really positive reviews. Our, our average is 4.63 on the products. We have an 8.8 NPS. We've had great press. And, I, and I, it's not because of us. It's because I think people wanted products like this and they wanted to be spoken to a certain way. It's not because they know who Dina and I are. So it's exciting because that's the company that we wanted to build. We wanted to build a company for people. And it's been great. We're in a phase right now where a lot of people feel that same way about a lot of things. Like they don't really feel like the the messaging, not just for sex products, but for everything, doesn't feel native to them, doesn't feel like it. it, it they own it. Mm-hmm. But it seems like nowadays you can get a brand up and going and create that very quickly, create that trust. Was there something that you knew from your experience doing it at Everlane or like how did you actually feel like you you were able to connect it and it wasn't just your opinion it was something that many other people were were feeling well that that survey and talking to people and sort of assessing the state of this industry what was what informed like our brand book our tone of voice very early on we knew who we were going to be and we stuck to it and i think that's exactly what everlane did i mean i was there so early and we were just really consistent from day one. And I think that's, for us, that's been really the secret is like, be consistent, know who you are. Don't try to be everything. And also don't really pay attention to what everyone else is doing and be reactive to that. It's really important to know who you are and know that there is a consumer out there for you. Uh, And it's really easy to focus on everyone else in your space. That's been what's made us feel like we're carving out something that's real and that's that's meaningful to the consumer is that we actually just stick to who we are and then we we listen to what they want. So you've been featured in a lot of articles and there's there is this thing that's happening in the world that you know happened in tandem with you building uh, the company and we're seeing a lot of articles come out where you know th- we just had the holidays obviously so there were a lot of gift guides and that kind of stuff that featured you but one thing that I know is you're approaching the company from a very different perspective how do you manage to keep the, the mod identity and your philosophy to have its own voice when it's, it's kind of being lumped in with a lot of other things that are happening in the world? Well, I mean, in everything that we're doing, we're trying to find timelessness. And so whether that's our approach to content or the approach to the packaging, it's really about timelessness. I think that, that the other companies that exist sometimes to me feel very of the now, which is great because I think there's a consumer for them and I think that they're very excited by it. But we're really trying to play the long game of like, how do we really innovate and change this industry that has for so long looked the same? And I say it often, but like, how can we become the new standard? And even if that means that there will be many more companies in our space at some point, inevitably there will be, how can we lead the way to be the new standard? So that's how I think about it. We we try not to have too much seasonality and we try not to be too trendy. Although if you if you like look at the website or you look at how we've done some things, they they feel very like startup 101. It wasn't on purpose. And so we will I feel like we will evolve and we will get better and we will be more interesting as we go once we've had that very clear foundation, but we're pretty focused on on just that timelessness. That's like the best way I can describe how we think of everything. I like this idea. I've been spending a lot of time. Um, I, I support this foundation called the Long Now Foundation, which is all about long-term thinking, but like very mm-hmm. long-term, hundreds or, or thousands of years. Like how can humanity, <laughs> it sounds like very crazy, <laughs> but it's like how can humanity continue to exist is one big question, but also like it has been existing for a long time and how can we, <laughs> what can we do? Um, they, they have all these crazy projects, like they're building this crazy clock that's supposed to uh, exist for 10,000 years that's going to go inside of a mountain or something. And uh, it's a very, it's very fascinating The the, the guy who started it is um, Stuart Brand, um, as well as Kevin Kelly, who was also on our on our podcast a while back. But I like these ideas of how can we things so feel so fast and crazy right now. How can we slow it down and go back to things that are very human, things that 
people have been doing for thousands of years, like having sex. They have. Yeah. Well, it's funny if the the history and specifically like the past couple hundred years in this industry are so interesting because they were fighting the same fights that we think we're fighting now and that we think are unique to us. They're not. Something that is always, I find like incredibly funny is I will talk. So Stephen Allen, again, is an investor in Tinker and he's also an investor in Mod and you know, we'll go for a cup of coffee to catch up and he'll be like, oh yeah, you know, in the eighties I was doing this thing. And like, it sounds exactly like something we've talked about in the office that we think is so interesting and unique to us. And like, we're going to go. And it's like, wait a second. It's all been thought of before. People have been having sex forever. There have been multiple waves and movements in this space. We're not the first ones. And so I think it's important to get out of your vacuum and say, like, what is happening in the world at large and then what's been happening in order to make more informed decisions. And Dina and I also hate, like, the self-aggrandizing behavior in the startup world anyway. So it allows for you to check yourself to have those outside conversations. So I really love that idea of, like, longer-term thinking. What do you think American society should look like when it comes to sexual, the, the conversation around sex in 30 years if, if mod is successful? I would really love for us to get to a place, this sounds funny, but of everydayness and of recognizing that this is a natural biological thing. We all do this. This is how we all got here in the first place. It's really sad that only 13 states require sex education that is actually medically accurate. And I think rather than applying these rules of culture, I would just love for us in 30 years to be to at least have this baseline of like, this is sex, this is how it works, these are the things that you need in order to protect yourself or do X, Y, and Z, this is what your life looks like in terms of hormonal changes and what that requires. Okay, we all understand that. (laughs) And then you can talk about everything else. If we could just get there, I would be happy. Um, And we're not there yet. But it is a very generational thing. I think 30 years is probably the right timescale because it's ideally... The people who are buying your products today, when their kids that they're having are 30 (laughs) in 30 years, what will their mindset be and how will they teach their own children, you know, how to be a human? One of our investors, I did the initial phone call with him and then he said, you know, I'm going to take this to the dinner table. And he went and talked to his kids. Uh, A few of them are in college and he talked to his wife and they all were really excited about mod and it, it, spoke to him and his wife and it spoke to his kids. And so I thought that was an interesting example of like, yes, this thinking around sex, it can be timeless. It can be universal. It can be a very frank conversation. And so he came back and he invested. And I thought that was interesting that it was partly because he spoke to his kids. I'm reading, I just started reading a, a famous book. Do you know The Hero's Journey? Mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I've, no, I've known about the theory of it for a long time, but it's just, I just started reading it and it's, it's really fascinating. It talks about, you know, these rituals that, that looking at the, the commonalities between stories and mythologies and rituals that, are, that have been done since the very beginning. And so much of it has to do with, you know, the basically like what it's like to be a teenager and and what happens in that moment when you're going through all of these transitions in your body and it's a very <laughs> scary and weird and tricky thing and so introducing some of these conversations at an earlier age it's always been so awkward but is that something that you feel you have a responsibility to do or are you more focused on adults how do you think about that so our goal would, is to support organizations that do that. And one of them is the Peer Health Exchange, which we supported the New York chapter here. And they do peer-to-peer health education. They found that, you know, if you can educate college kids on how to go and educate high school kids on sex, it's easier for them to listen to, talk to, you know, talk about sex with what they, they think is their peer. Sort of this older sister, older brother model. And so... I feel like it's our responsibility to support the organizations that are doing this. I don't think that we can be all of those things. And that's one of those things that we recognize. Like instead of, instead of declaring that we can be all of those things in month nine, we try our best to just support the organizations that are doing it and have been doing it for a long time. So yeah, that's how I think of it. But there's huge opportunity to, to get involved. It just requires 
more product, more bandwidth, a bigger team. Yeah. It, it's interesting that you mentioned that there are things that in the beginning of Lumi, well, Lumi 2.0, what, the, the past four years of, of the existence of our, our company, we had thought about from a very early stage uh, around topics of sustainability and, and responsible manufacturing. But we, and we knew where we wanted to go with it, but we felt like we didn't have the authority to be walking around saying like, you know, this is wrong, this is good, because it's such a complex topic. And we wanted to be existing in the world for a little while, kind of understanding what was going on to be able to like build up that authority. And I wonder if there are things like that that you see on the horizon, there are topics or themes or ideas that you have that you you kind of like aren't are shy about at the moment that you haven't figured out how to say yet because you're waiting on the right time? Yeah, I think it's, you know, we do want to work more with college students. We want to work more with health professionals. I think that becoming a brand that's validated by those audiences and that can work hand in hand with them is really the goal. It's not ever to just, for example, like I don't know that we would create sex ed content and be like the go-to for it. I don't think that we have to be. I think there's just a way to to support it. And so that's how I, I think that we're just not there yet in terms of being the company to go to for, for these groups yet, but it's starting. We've had a lot of outreach from health professionals. We've worked with a few colleges and we're piloting how we can operate and where there's opportunity, but it's never because we think we shouldn't or can't. It's just like, how can you test things that are helpful? When I think about you and I think about the brand of, of mod, I think the first word that comes to my mind is kindness. I like that it's a very kind, very empathetic, very humanistic point of view. And that's very different from just about any other brand that I can think of. I, I don't really think of any brand as being kind. I think obviously in the in the condom market you have hyper masculine products, you know, the the Trojan type of things in the world are like, it's almost like Axe body spray type of stuff. Um, and then on the other side, you have hyper feminine, like empowerment type of language. But what you're talking about is, to me, it doesn't seem connected to gender, really. It, it seems connected to a value that is really needed right now in the world, but also very subtle and hard to explain sometimes. <laughs> I think it's true. I feel like it is hard to explain. I don't think it's hard to understand. I feel like we say internally, we also say on the site, but it's people first. Sex is human. And we always put people first. Uh, our job is to listen to the consumer. Our job is to produce goods for the consumer. We don't need to talk at them. Part of our voice guide that we built was like, we're non-prescriptive. We're helpful, but we're not telling them what they should do. Obviously, with the product, you need to be educational and factual and all of those things. But I think just in terms of the kinds of questions and concerns that you know they have and they've reached out to us about, you have to tread lightly and carefully. And mm. empathy is a huge piece of it. So another you know thing that we, we say internally is EQ is just as important as IQ when we hire because all of our employees will be at some point interacting with a consumer and, and that's how you have to think. So I really appreciate that, that you understand that about us because that's exactly what we want to convey. Yeah, I think the hard thing about conveying it right is there's a bit of a paradox, especially as a startup when you're you know trying to get people to know about you, to be sort of a more quiet brand that, that emphasizes that side of things is, is difficult when you're like trying to shout on the rooftops like hey we exist we're over here and we're really quiet and kind and and friendly and humanistic it, it's a hard kind <laughs> yeah. of balance to, to strike i think so 70 percent of people find out about us through social media or word of mouth i do not have to scream anything they're talking to one another yeah and that's what's been great and i think that i remember the early days of everlane it was very similar I was like, there were days at the office where I'm like, it feels so quiet. Like we're not moving anything. And it was actually growing quite quickly and people were talking about it and it was becoming well-known in pockets that end up connecting. And that's what's happening with mods. 60% of our audience is in the middle of the country. And that's actually grown in the past nine months. So we're really letting this unfold and we're, we're finding opportunities to do things 
smartly and, and thoughtfully. And we're not trying to, yeah, we're not trying to declare anything. We're trying to let this company become what, what the consumer is looking for while still knowing ourselves. And I think it's a very different approach than other, than other brands, especially in this space. Is there anything you're doing to facilitate the word of mouth? No, (laughs) no, I mean, we, you know, we've, um, we just closed that second round of funding. So we've been running off of the first, you know, 600,000 and it was, we spent money on paid. We tested out social ads on social media, but we haven't done much more. We, we did launch a, we actually have a physical location. It's called our winter studio for now. Um, we have it indefinitely but we're doing more partnerships and more activations and there's community building that's happening and we will start investing in other forms of advertising. But to date, it's really been hyper-focused and the growth has been through people talking. But you have to somehow get those uh, those thousand true fans in the beginning. You need to get those people who are the, the seed who are going to share it with all the other people. How did they, they found out about you through the press or through other means or they're just your friends? Like how do you get the, the message started? They originally found out about us through press. And because of that early press in 2017, there was already an awareness, Mm. which is helpful. But I feel like we talked about this in the first episode, but there's something to be said for that brand consistency because as you start, and I would say we sort of look like some other brands right now in general, again, this like startup, you know, typical startup stuff. But I feel like if people can look at, we get this a lot with our Instagram stories. They're like, I read your stories and it's so much it's just very much mod. Like I think now I go out in the world and I'll read something and I'll be like, oh, mod would have like written this. Or I think our voice and our color and our tone is starting to become more recognizable. And that allows for the brand to cut through the noise out in the world. And so that's what we're focusing on. 2019, we're in January right now as we record this. And I'm just curious, what are you hoping for out of this year? If, if last year was, was the launch, what's this year going to be about? This year is about, first and foremost, it's about retention. Now we have a brand. Are we making those first thousand? In our case, it's 11,000. But are you making those first 11,000 people come back? Are you getting them excited about coming back? They are, but there are other ways to do that. And then I think we're also thinking about testing new brand awareness channels and, and opportunities. And, you know, we we always try to do things that are a little unobvious. So if we go take out ads, they're not going to be on the New York City subway in our first year. <laughs> we're going to find the cities that were resonating already and like go activate them, if you will. And so that's how we think about it. And we're in hotels, which is provides like a great physical location to do this kind of stuff. But that's how we think. We're just in it's it. This year is testing. I, I, I don't know. I didn't mention this, but you're a master of communication, even just on your own personal uh, Instagram and other places. Uh, I'm always like looking at what you're you're doing just for inspiration. It really I find it amazing. And you've done it for Everlane. You've done it for for Mod. Is there anything that you can teach me and the listeners about where <laughs> you think things are going over the next couple of years? Because it's it does feel like a lot of the the traditional or non traditional, but the social media channels that we've been uh, using for a little while have almost reached saturation or something. How do you get your voice out there? Is there anything that's are there is there any ground? <laughs> I mean, you guys do a fantastic job. I don't know, what you're, like you guys do a fantastic job. I think the fact that I love what you guys have done with video and with this podcast. I think. Those are the things that we hope to do is like create content that not only informs, because I think that's something that is overlooked often, which is like, there are many brands that like to talk about themselves. And if there is no takeaway for the consumer, then it isn't interesting. And at some point I think people want to, you know, they want to turn it off. So if you can give them a takeaway or something in what you're saying is educational or, or interesting, I think that's how you rise above the din. And every single day, that's what we try to do on Instagram is do something that's educational. We're starting to see people ask, like, can you tell us more about the company and show behind the scenes? But for the most part, our focus will always be on creating interesting content that's about sex and education and history and science, et cetera. So that would be my advice is like, don't think about you, think about them. Yeah, that's I mean, that's I run the editorial side of Lumi and we think of it as a product. Uh, that's how we, mm-hmm. we don't think of it as marketing. We just think of the podcast, the videos, 
even Instagram as who's this for and how can we make it useful to them? So there's lots of stuff mm-hmm. that we we don't do. Like we don't put little icons all over our blog that say share it over here or do this. Like we don't try to hide uh, in our RSS feed or something like the content. We make it available everywhere so that whatever your preferences in terms of how you want to actually like access our our content, make it really easy for people. But I, what I warn people about when they, they say like, hey, you've got a podcast, should I do a podcast? You've got YouTube and this different stuff. We sort of have the luxury of, you know, if you go to our YouTube, you know, we're not get it's not viral. <laughs> like we're not getting a million <laughs> views on our YouTube. We're getting thousands of views on our, on our YouTube. But we've been doing it for a couple of years and being very patient and growing it little by little. That, you know, that's one strategy, but also because we talk to businesses rather than individuals, we don't necessarily need a million people to watch or listen to our content for it to be successful for us. So having the patience is important. Creating a, a product that people from a content po- point of view that people want to engage with or like listen to or watch is important. But then the thing that I don't know, and I feel like at Lemi, I don't have to worry about it so much, is how do you reach mass audiences or do you need to do that in order to be successful well this is a it's just an interesting question in that i feel like we're in a time where startups seem like they have fast success overnight and yes a few of them do and a few of them are so well funded that they can be everywhere at once we don't know what their metrics are we don't actually know if they're ads everywhere are doing anything. So that's number one is recognizing that just because you're everywhere doesn't necessarily mean that you're successful. It just means you might have a lot of money to burn. I would say whatever success looks like to you, like in our case, I would rather have 10,000 customers who come back to us year after year than get into the hands of a million people in the first year and nobody comes back. Sure. It also provides this chance to make sure your product is you, you have like an early product market fit and it's a real, like people really like the product and it's working. And I was excited that we did get to change up our box and our packaging because it was in response to what the consumer was saying. And have patience. Like, <laughs> just, re- you know, like recognize that building incredible companies takes a while and building a consumer relationship takes a while. I, I don't know if you still get asked this, but is there anybody that thinks that Lumi is much younger than it is? I don't know. I, I have, you know, I have a bad perception of that. There's people who come to me. The problem is that we've been calling our stuff Lumi for nine years, and people will come to me and, and say, um, "Hey, I've been a fan since the very beginning." And I say, "What do you mean? What do you mean by that?" And they'll <laughs> once in a while we'll get someone who says, "Like I knew you back in the Incodie days, and I backed your first Kickstarter," and it's like. You're OG, but there's some people who've known us for one year or two years who'll say the same thing. So I don't have a strong perception of what the world (laughs) out there thinks of us. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. I I don't know either, but like, and we have done a lot. There's been a lot that's happened in this year, but people are like, it feels like mods everywhere. All I do is hear about mod. And I'm like, oh, that's great. (laughs) I don't feel, I feel like we have so, you know, we do have a really, hopefully like a long, amazing road ahead of us. And I'm excited about it and I'm trying to take it day by day and and be focused. And so, yeah, in terms of building a brand and building a successful company, like success comes in many forms. Although I've always said, and you will hear me say it in other places, there is no arrival sign. Yeah. And I don't think there will ever be one. Wow. That's deep. I almost feel like we should end (laughs) on that. Um, But I wanted to ask you, about the packaging stuff because I ha- I was this is this is actually really cool for me because I have no idea what was going on and I know that obviously uh, you're working with Lumi on on it and there was some structural engineering and different stuff happening to to figure out how we could improve the way it was shipped to your customers because you introduced new products and so that introduced like new challenges of how do you fulfill them if if there's like multiple things in a kit or something like that. What did you figure out at that from consumers? You were mentioning there was something that they were asking for. How did you figure that out? So our original packaging had inserts, right? So, and there were seven inserts. And so every combination of the kit, so there were seven kits, which we will probably do away with some of those kits. And we sort of went headfirst into, okay, there's seven kits, you get seven inserts. 
And then obviously you start getting these questions of like, okay, but what do we do when someone orders like two of this and four of that? And, you know, and so we started realizing we needed to have solutions that were a little bit more useful for a variety of configurations than just this kit thinking. And so we changed up the boxes and now we have three sizes of boxes instead of one. We used to have just like the pouch and one box and then those seven inserts. And now we have three sizes of boxes, a couple different inserts or not inserts, but separators. And so it basically is really, it solves for all of the needs that we have and can, well, foreseeably, I think in terms of the products that we will be releasing, they'll fit in the box in a certain configuration too. That's good. So it just took a little bit. Yeah, sorry. That was long-winded, but I think it's like, you realize, oh, this, you can't scale. Well, it's a challenge that everybody everybody deals with when you know when you start off and you have you know a small number of of products in your product lineup, and then that grows, and you know the number of configurations that are possible just multiplies exponentially. So that makes it challenging, especially if you want everything to feel premium as as you're as you're opening it. So we'll put some photos in the in the show notes so people can check it out and see the product. And one of the big things that didn't exist a year ago at Lumi, which is what you you took advantage of was the the structural uh, and rapid prototyping capabilities that we have now. So I'm sure that Ryan and Julie, who like run that team, are are excited to hear this. And it's it's been really cool seeing it, you know, in the hands of customers. So congratulations! Thank you. If people want to learn more about Mod, it's getmod.com. Your Instagram? What's your Instagram? Get Mod because we couldn't get Mod. Got Mod. <laughs> You couldn't get mod, but you got mod, get mod. So G-E-T-M-A-U-D-E. Anything else you want to point people to? Well, no, I think if if they're interested, we also have the modern, which you can go to get mod and click the modern in the top, or you can just go to the modern and it's M-A-U-D-E-R-N. So themodern.com. And that's your blog. Yeah. Explain a little bit about the modern. What, What is that? The modern is our blog. And like I said, we focus on culture, science, health, design. And that's our angle. And it's, it's informative and it's interesting and it's also evergreen. So you can go back into the archives and I, it still applies. Neat. We'll put some links to your personal Instagram. You're always traveling, sharing cool stuff that you're, you're seeing out there. I'm always looking to you for, for inspiration for travels and stuff like that. I was in Mexico City recently and you sent me all these great recommendations. I think people will really enjoy uh, your personal stuff as well. Thank you. And actually, I don't travel as much anymore. So if you look at the dates on those photos, you'll be like, oh yeah, she's she's just in the mod office. <laughs> Doesn't matter though. Those old recommendations are still good. Thank so you. Uh, beautiful stuff and and much success. I hope 2019 is, is as great as uh, 2018 was. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's been so good catching up. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.